So thanks everyone for joining us today. We have the Medical Liability Minute and we're excited to bring on board <clears throat> Ben Harvey. He is both an MD and a JD on faculty at Mass General Hospital and Harvard Medical School, where he practices neuroradiology. He also leads quality and safety. <clears throat> he has consulted and lectured domestically and internationally on healthcare risk management issues and has published the largest study to date on medical malpractice and radiology. His research includes 70 plus peer reviewed publications, including contributions in JAMA and New England Journal of Medicine. And I get both of those. He received his MD from the University of North Carolina Medical School, and I'm, I am recording this from North Carolina right now, and his JD degree from Harvard Law School. Not too many MD JDs in the country. Um, Ben is um, an MDJD, as am I. He completed his residency and fellowship at Mass General Hospital and works in Boston, Massachusetts. Thanks so much for joining us today, Ben. Sure, Welcome thanks aboard. so much for having me. <laughs> so here's the topic we're going to chat about today. And I have to be candid. I knew nothing about this topic at all. It's about the pending litigation tsunami with gadolinium dye for MR scan. So I knew zip, nada, nothing about it. And what's shocking is that when you presented the material today uh, to me, it sounds like there's so much going on right now that it won't take much to, um, to, uh, to get to a tipping point. So the reason for this podcast is to educate people about the dye that is used for MR scans and how it's changed the risk profile for litigation, potentially in an explosive way. And anyone and everyone who touches gadolinium can potentially be held liable. So who, who, who might that be? It might be manufacturers, health systems, radiologists, and most importantly, those who are ordering the scan. So let's, let's start with the real basics. Why don't you explain to, the, uh, to our audience what is gadolinium and what is it meant to do? Certainly. Um, so gadolinium is the kind of or the element that is the primary active ingredient in our MR contrast agent. So the intravenous contrast you use when you order an MRI with contrast. And so it's an intravenous contrast agent and, and gadolinium is what allows us to get that uh, the vessel contrast that we want in those studies. Um, as, as a basic agent, though, gadolinium is, a, is, a, is an element, it's a heavy metal. It had been known to be a toxic agent all the way up into the mid-80s when it was realized that if we were able to compound it with um, other type of, uh, of chemicals, then we may be able to create a safety profile that's acceptable mm -hmm. for this agent and allow it to be a, a, an intravenous contrast agent for MRI uh, and, uh, studies. So while most people have heard of gadolinium, <clears throat> I'm not sure very many people in the medical profession have heard about macrocyclic agents and linear agents, both of which are in the gadolinium world. And it's probably useful just to have the briefest of descriptions as to what they are and maybe the distinction between the two of them. Certainly. So it's... Um for for gadolinium-based agents or for gadolinium-based contrast agents, you have different classes. And these classes have been formed based in part on the stability of the agents, the likelihood of the gadolinium separating from the macromolecule, and other uh, characteristics about how they distribute in the, in, the, in the body and in the blood pool. 
Um, these classes, if we look at the uh, classes of GBCAs, we have the main ones to know are kind of the class ones and class twos, the linear agents, which are known mm -hmm. to be less stable, and the macrocyclic agents, which are known to have higher stability. The importance in these class one and class two drugs is actually recently because of some of the issues that we'll kind of go into um, in this podcast, the European kind of equivalent of the FDA has actually pulled um, uh, clearance of the class ones in Europe. Um, and so they only have the macrocyclic agents or the, the gadolinium-based contrast agents with mm -hmm. higher stability that are allowed on the market right now. Whereas the FDA in the United States has decided to leave both of those groups, both the class ones and the class twos, or the, the linears and the macro cyclics on the market. So in terms of the marketplace, do you see that even though the FDA has not taken action on it, that the linear agents are starting to fade just in terms of how they're being used in the marketplace? Or it's really nothing's really changed uh, much here in the United States? No, certainly. And, and that's what's interesting about this topic. So. Um, if we look at the, there's a, a, a greater understanding, well, I, I'm going to do a little bit, if it's okay with right now, I'm going to give a little bit of foundational background that allow us to just start diving in. Is that okay? Yeah, please do, because almost nobody really understands the basis of what we're going to get into. Like I said, I knew nothing about this, and because it's a potential litigation tsunami, I think we need to understand a bit more so we can protect ourselves and our patients. Perfect. So let me let me start with a, a little bit of, of, of kind of very basic background. So as we said, you know, the gadolinium agents are, are used as intravenous contrast agents mm -hmm. um, for, for MRIs. For up until the kind of late 90s, the safety profile of these were thought to be almost crystal clean, right? There was just mm -hmm. no safety issues at all. And then, then in the late 90s, early 2000s, we started realizing that in patients with um, impaired renal function, the class one or the linear agents could rarely but could cause a very devastating um, uh, devastating uh, adverse reaction that we know as, as NSF. Well, this um, is interesting. So, you know, renal function has also been <clears throat> addressed or a factor in the traditional IV contrast agents um, that we used, for, you know, and still use um, that have been used for many years, correct? That, that's correct. For CT, we've always known that in, in kind of renally impaired patients, you could, mm -hmm. it could give some impact on, um, on their kidneys. But for, for MRI, we didn't know that. So in the early 2000s, we started seeing a, a group of patients that were getting very severe kind of systemic sclerosing reactions from, um, from exposure to gadolinium contrast. And this was called nephrogenic systemic fibrosis, mm -hmm. or NSF. And what this resulted in, and, and, these, and for many of these patients, it was essentially a death sentence. So, so then we stepped back and we said, oh, Lord, okay. So we thought that gadolinium agents were completely safe, but now we have NSF out there, which is saying we actually, we need to be concerned in our renally impaired patients. And this resulted in a kind of a sea change within the practice of medicine, where before anyone received a gadolinium agent, you would check their GFR and, and make sure that their renal function was okay. And if their GFR was under a certain threshold, they would not be allowed to get a gadolinium agent unless it was very much needed and they went through um, an informed consent process. So essentially, right. it was the first time we had a meaningful risk exposure related to the gadolinium agent. Because of what was the different safety systems put into place, 
we essentially eliminated the risk of NSF completely. So what was a risk exposure for for uh, hospitals and, and, and radiologists around um, NSF and, and gadolinium really became no longer an exposure. And then a second thing happened, which is this class two or this group of macrocyclics entered the market. The right. macrocyclics had higher stability and essentially the risk of NSF with them was thought to be almost zero. And the fact is for all of the different macrocyclic agents, We've not seen any cases of unconfounded NSF, and this has gone to the point essentially that now the ACR, the American College of Radiology, in their guidelines says as long as you're using a class two, you no longer have to check renal function, right? That's how low or non-existent the risk of NSF is to believe to be with these class two agents. So, so it so sounded, like, the, sounded like a short-term victory, meaning that um, the – the type of compound, the macrocyclics, was a step up and had essentially eliminated a newly found risk and eliminated it for the most part. So there was a great incentive to migrate and only use the macrocyclic agents. That's that's right. Or, or you could keep your your GFR kind of um, checks in place and and in doing so, you know, ensure that your risk of NSF was so low that mm-hmm. that it really wasn't a meaningful risk. But then what happened in 2016 is a couple publications started coming out, which was describing the retention of gadolinium within the soft tissues, specifically in the brains of patients who had received multiple um, injections of, of gadolinium contrast. And, and there, was, there was no clear understanding of whether there was a physiologic consequence to this. Um, but but the, the papers started coming out, and part of the reason what why I think these papers started coming out, if we're honest with ourselves, is you know after we went through the the CT dose scare where everybody said you know if you get a CT you're going to die of cancer, and we knew that that wasn't based on good data, but mm-hmm. but you know publications you know they like scare tactics do well for 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 publications, and so once that died down, there needed to be this second wave of of scaring people, and and it started to happen <laughs> around gadolinium. Um, and I know that sounds like a little bit of a cynical uh, approach to this, but the reason I say that is we've known that gadolinium was retained in tissue since the 80s, right? So that wasn't the fact that gadolinium was retained in, in the body after gadolinium injections was known for, for 20 plus years um, or now 30 plus years. So why, why was this something new that was coming up now, right? We had to justify as to why this was, was breaking news. Yeah, so it's interesting. <clears throat> the question is, I think they're calling it gadolinium deposition disease. And so the the question is, if we already know that it gets retained, the more important question is, what is the clinical significance of it? And I think that's what the papers were pointing to. Is that correct? And and you hit that you hit it on the head there, which is so essentially what happened in this kind of new environment where people were publishing on, on or increased publications around the retention of gadolinium and soft tissues mm-hmm. is there was a series of publications that came out from a few physicians that described a group of patients with normal renal function, which seemed to have a similar concept, a constellation of symptoms. These patients were, were describing kind of peripheral or generalized pain, kind of pins and needles sensation and a glove and sock kind of distribution, mm-hmm. joint stiffness, muscle spasms, headaches, what they called brain fog or clouded mentation, 
Right. And if you notice, those first four kind of characteristics are all very subjective. And I don't mean to downplay gadolinium deposition disease, but in some sense, it reminds us all of getting old, right? We all kind of have this generalized pain. Yeah, fibromyalgia headache. also. Yeah, I mean, there are a, exactly. a collection, you know, the things that really, we're always scratching our heads. Is it a real condition? And if so, how do you treat it? How do you try and make patients better? So you, this is That's almost right. like the worst it's, of all worlds. That's right. It parallels parallels those generalized pain syndromes, which are very difficult both to to diagnose and deal with. Mm -hmm. There was one other characteristic that was described in these group of patients that believed that they had um, clinical symptoms related to gadolinium exposure, and that was some, some distal arm and leg skin thickening, which was interesting about that last kind of characteristic, because that was a characteristic that actually we see in patients with NSF. Right. Huh. And so huh. that's what kind of created this nexus between wait, maybe these symptoms are related to the gadolinium exposure. And that led to a, a three papers being published that started to describe something that they called gadolinium deposition disease. So it now has a name. Yeah. We now exactly. have a name for it. Uh-huh. And, 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 and there was no, honestly, if we look at how that original paper was published, it really, in my mind, shouldn't have been published. What they did was they took a group of patients that were in a forum of around that, you know, a forum of gadolinium toxicity. So a patient forum that has self-selected saying that, you know, gadolinium has has poisoned them. And from those patients, they figured out what symptoms they had in common and then published a paper on it, right? It it was Uh just a very interesting way to to describe a new and and in some sense a self-selecting way to describe a new disease. But the problem was that the journals published it. So now we have in the peer-reviewed academic journals, new papers that are describing something called gadolinium deposition disease, where patients with normal renal function after receiving gadolinium doses get a chronic pain syndrome. Wow. Um, now that it has a name, I, I know that people beat up on drug companies for labeling um, conditions of life as a disease. And then, of course, they have the treatment for that disease. And this is almost the reverse, where instead of the drug company doing it, the patients themselves have done it. But really, the name was attributed by the the researchers that wrote the paper, correct? Exactly. And so what this has done is it's created a new risk exposure in MRI. Now, let's look mm-hmm. at the data around this. If you look at the, the published statements of the FDA, of the American College of Radiology, of the American Society of Neuroradiology, they mm-hmm. all say date, there's no pathologic or clinical consequences of gadolinium retention, right? Minimal amounts are retained, and, and there's no data to show that there's a clinical consequence to it. We know that over 450 million doses of gadolinium have been given since its initial approval in the U.S. And so, so that tells us, well, okay, we can feel pretty comfortable. Maybe, you know, there's no real data to show that, that gadolinium deposition, deposition disease really exists. And so, so then you feel on a scientific ground, actually, I feel very comfortable saying, you know, gadolinium deposition disease, it's not clear that there, it actually is related at all to gadolinium deposition, that these symptoms and, and, and the gadolinium exposure um, really have any meaningful uh, many connection. That said, though, what, what else do we know? Well, we know that from a, if a plaintiff's attorney wants to bring a case for gadolinium deposition disease, what is he or she going to point to? Well, they have a lot mm-hmm. to point to. 
Because if we look at how the government and industry has acted around this, you do a sniff test there and it seems like something's up, right? So, so April 2016, we have the gadolinium deposition disease papers published. May 2016, we have the American College of Radiology that, that issues an official warning statement to healthcare providers and tells them when choosing a gadolinium-based contrast, you should can consider how much gadolinium deposits in the brain. Well, why would you consider it if there's no issue there, right? And hang, on, hang on. So, so why did the ACR do that if the if the data connecting the symptoms with the I guess the the name of the disease or the retention was minimal to nil? Why did the ACR jump into this game and provide <clears throat> gasoline to the um the emerging litigation well, if, fire. If, 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 you, if you read the statement from the ACR, it's one where I think they were trying to, to stamp it out, right? They basically said, there's no real data here, but in the absence of data, we should be cautious. And so I don't have that much problem with, with that. The problem was they got to a point of what factors you could consider, and they specifically pulled out propensity of deposition in the brain, right? And, 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 and mm -hmm. specifically looking at a single organ. And so, so I think that they were trying, and, and if you look at the overall statement, the overall statement does try to send this message of, you know, there's no complete evidence. There's no really convincing evidence that this actually is a, is a real disease at this point. But at the same time, as is often the case, sometimes in speaking, even though we're trying to do well, we can create additional liability. And I think that's one of the things that, that happens in that statement as an unattended consequence. But then we can look a year later, May 2017, the mm -hmm. FDA kind of acknowledges questions surrounding gadolinium deposition disease and kind of publishes a statement about a cohort of patients, right? So, they're, so there, the FDA is now officially recognizing that this cohort exists, even though they don't know whether gadolinium deposition disease really exists. July 2017, the European FDA pulls, you know, um, approval of certain uh, gadolinium-based agents. December 2017, the FDA now announces stronger warnings for these agents. In May 2018, the, the FDA is now requiring, um, manual, requiring people who are doing MRIs to give a, a, a kind of a safety warning, right, what they call a, a, a drug um, uh, kind of warning sheet or uh, informational sheet out to um, all outpatients getting MRIs with gadolinium contrast, right? Something that the FDA has rarely done, re requiring a medication right. guide to be given out before giving a contrast. So if you step back and look at this, you say, wait, well, people are acting like something's up. You know, you say there's no there there, but then why is everybody kind of making all of these moves? And that's the problem that we have here because we do have the scientific data that is suggesting there's no there there, but then we have government and industry actions suggesting there may be there there. We have mm -hmm. a few academic papers that are saying that there's there there. We have other academic papers that have now poured on that haven't been kind of, um, uh, that haven't been studies, but more kind of review papers that continue to build this idea that gadolinium deposition disease exists. And that's why I say that if, if there is a case, for instance, like the, we, we see that there's the multi-district litigation going against manufacturers right now, you know, I think that, that 
those medical experts that step in and say gadolinium deposition disease does exist, they're going to be allowed to testify because there's enough of a basis of data there right now that makes this a question of fact rather than a question of law. So let's just talk about the scope of the problem. There are about, four, if I if I read the number correctly, there are about 40 million MR scans performed a year. Of those scans, what percent do you think are associated with gadolinium use? And that's and so this is I think this also gets to the heart of the matter. So you're right, about 40 million, 39 to 40 million um, MRIs in a year. About 30 percent of those MRIs will use gadolinium. And then we have that other that other bubble in this diagram, which is well, how much of those where the gadolinium is being used? How many of those patients could be seen as a potential um, as as a potential risk, right? Mm-hmm. And and that's where we don't know because that's where we get back to these really vague symptoms of you know a patient who received gadolinium if they're having a headache within the weeks after gadolinium. Mm-hmm. And they claim based on, you know, all they need are two or three of the symptoms in order to be able to claim it. So if they have headaches, kind of generalized pain and brain fog, then all of those patients are able to basically put forth a claim of, I think I have gadolinium deposition disease. And so because of that, this becomes less of, for me, cases about whether the symptoms are actually there or whether the link's actually there, and more so something of, it gives personal injury attorneys something to advertise to. So you kind of brought it up before how pharmaceutical companies have been known to create disorders that don't really exist and then advertise to patients that they have those disorders. (laughs) Well, now this can get flipped at them the different way, which is there's a kind of this created disorder that might not exist, but personal injury attorneys can start advertising to patients that you have this disorder and because you have this disorder, we should be you know, bringing case for it. And so that's where it becomes difficult. If we look at the Google trend statistics over the past five years of kind of searches for gadolinium, we yeah. see that there's been marked increases in the number of searches. And if we look at the, which are, this is just kind of public data that anybody can do with Google trends. If you look at what folks are looking at, the number one thing they're looking at is gadolinium deposition disease. The number two query is gadolinium toxicity symptoms. And the number 10 is gadolinium lawsuit. So, and, and why do we think there's been this spike? Well, if you actually do the Google search for gadolinium deposition disease, you see that your top three to four advertisements are all coming from um, attorneys and are all coming from law firms. So what we're seeing here are, is money being spent specifically by law firms to market around this area and try to um, uh, acquire clients in order to bring these cases forward. You know, historically, and I don't know if this is still accurate or not, but the most expensive search term, the ones that people pay money for to get top billing is mesothelioma. And the reason that it um, costs so much is because it's a competitive term and those who dominate that landscape make a lot of money. And so you can actually, we can probably look at the trend the trend for what the going price is for gadolinium litigation, gadolinium deposition disease, and see if it starts going up. And this will give you an idea as to what this tsunami is going to look like. Now, one, one thing that I'm having a little bit of trouble wrapping my head around is You've got so many, so I can imagine the ads going like this. Did you have a recent MR scan or an MR scan in the past five years? Do you have a history of headaches, joint pain, et cetera? 
I mean, if you check all of those boxes, then you have a giant pool of people who will answer yes and find their way into, in a, into an attorney's office. Is that what you're thinking? Is that how you're thinking? Goes? Exactly. And, and so if we, if we, I think that there's two ways to think about this. And exactly, that is, that is somewhat how the thinking goes. So we know that there's two different types of cases that can be brought forth. The vast majority of these patients are, are going into the cases that are already set against the manufacturers, right? There's a multi-district litigation that's currently happening against manufacturers of gadolinium contrast from these patients, right? So those, are class, the vast, those are class action suits or not yet? <clears throat> they're they're, 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 they're multi-district litigation, so they're essentially yep. they're, they're pseudo-class actions, yes. exactly. Um, and and so, so, so that's already kind of started, right? But what we've seen multiple times in, in this field is that, okay, so, so <clears throat> there's the class actions, there are multi-district litigations that happen against um, the manufacturer, that happen against pharma, and then essentially all of those cases get consolidated into a few, which means the number of attorneys making money off of that becomes lower, right, because the other guys can't get in. And so now the only way for attorneys to potentially make money is if they want to go after hospitals or health or physicians, right, over the issue. And the question is, is there an opening for them to go after hospitals or physicians on this issue? And that's where I think this becomes very interesting, because my argument is, and we've already seen some claims coming forward, that there is an interesting way for them to come after health systems and hospitals on this issue and physicians, but there's an easy way also to protect against that. And so, so here- When, when, you, how, talk, when you talk about physicians, are you talking about radiologist, the person who signed the order, or both? Well, I, I'm talking about the person exactly, the person who signs the order, the gadolinium order. Um, and, and the reason I say that, and it, depending on how your EHR works, sometimes the person signing that order is a radiologist. Other right. times the person signing that order may actually be the ordering physician or the referring physician. And, right. and so the, where the liability would fall to the person that would sign that order. So, so if we look at, so if we start with the, the kind of product liability cases against the manufacturer, that's exactly what you just stated. The, the case theory is, you know, it's, it's patients that have received gadolinium that now have these symptoms. And if you have these symptoms, okay, let's, let's go sue the, the manufacturer together. That, mm -hmm. that case theory is fairly easy and, and simple and easily understood. The case theory against hospitals and physicians and, or the, the physicians signing the gadolinium orders is slightly more complex, and it's this. It says, okay, I can't just bring a claim against them about uh, gadolinium contrast because the fact is it's clearly within the standard of care to use gadolinium contrast. Right. So if I just try to bring a, a claim against a hospital that said, you used gadolinium contrast and gave me gadolinium deposition disease, there's no way that would flow. So how is there a way that we give that claim wings? And the way you give that claim wings is you said, okay, it's true that you, are, it's within the standard of care to use gadolinium contrast, but you actually used a gadolinium contrast that left two times or five times or 10 times as much gadolinium in my brain than it needed to, mm -hmm. right? Yeah. And, and because of that, what you've done is you've increased my risk to gadolinium deposition disease. Now, that's where it becomes hairy, right? Because there's no good data to suggest that the amount of gadolinium in the brain, right, correlates to the likelihood of this disease because we don't even think the disease actually really exists, right? Here's right. where it gets so murky. But if we look at other case 
theories. And for instance, we've known for a long time that cerebral palsy is not related to bad deliveries. ACOG has had multiple panels come forward, has put a lot of evidence forward to this, but that's not stopped those cases from coming forward. And it's certainly right. not stopped those cases from being settled. And so for for good, you're, for you're, you're talking science, about but, you're talking about litigation theater as opposed to the science behind it, correct? That's right, and 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 that's where I think that many physicians and scientists are having trouble with this issue because if I speak about this issue, they say the data is not there, and they just ignore it and write it off. And I'm like, I agree with you, the data is mm-hmm. not there, but there's enough data there for this to make it into a jury question. And once it's a jury question, it becomes less about the data and more about the theater. And the theater around this issue can be robust. And so, so, so that's so what, where, so where- what you want to, So what you wanna do, I think, is to potentially accept the fact that there is theater. And I, most, most physicians um, are, we care more about not getting sued in the first place than having their day in court and prevailing. So. I think where you're going is that in terms of litigation theater, not all gadolinium agents are created equally, and that if you're going to pick one, there may be a better one to pick than another one, at least uh, at least as far as the chart goes. Is that accurate? That, 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 that's exactly it. And so if, if we're saying, if we say, okay, so the only way a claim could potentially come against me is somebody saying that because I gave them a certain agent, I increased their risk of gadolinium deposition disease. So if I am a risk manager and I want to try to kind of bring my risk down to the lowest amount, then what I do is I choose the agent that leaves the, the, the least amount behind, right? right. And, and for me, now there's different places that you can decide of, of where they leave stuff behind. Are they leaving stuff behind in the brain, in the kidneys, or in the bones? And if you look at the data around that, there's a single contrast agent, um, which is known as Prohance or um, Gatoteridol, that is the, the best agent when it comes repeat to that. Activities. Yeah, repeat, the, repeat that agent. for our audience. What's the name of that agent again? Yep, it's Gatoteridol, G-A-D-O-T-E-R-I-D-O-L, and it's and trade, trade name is Pro, Prohance. And, and okay. when I, when, let me be very clear at this point and say, and I probably should have said this from the beginning, I have zero financial conflicts. I don't have any consulting relations with pharma. And I don't, I don't either. have any of those. And so, so no conflicts here. And, and that's what some people say, oh, Ben, how can you make a, how can you make a statement recommending one? I say, because it's based on the risk management data. I don't have any conflicts of interest. My only interest is reducing risk. And this is why I say it. And so, so if you look at the, the data on this, what happens is if you look at the three macrocyclics, and the three macrocyclics, just to kind of be clear, are, um, I'm just use the trade names, Gadavis, Prohance, and Dodrum. And in the grand scheme of things, you look across these agents, honestly, from the scientific standpoint, they're equally safe, right? They're equally safe. Mm-hmm. But if we look at the, the litigation theater standpoint, Gadotero uh-huh. or, or Prohance is is your best option. And the reason being, there's now two papers that have shown that in this early time, because gadolinium deposition disease really needs to present in the first month, within the first month of delivery of these agents, Prohans or gadoteridol has significantly less deposition in the brain and significantly less deposition in the kidneys and only minimally more in the femur, right? And so, so it's one of those of the three agents 
it's the one that that based on the data is the strongest. Now people will say, well, but why do we care more about the brain, you know, than we and the kidneys than we do the femur? And my only thing is that is there's two things. One, when we look at the differences between these agents, if we look at the difference, for instance, in femoral uptake we're maybe seeing a 20% difference or a 30% difference between agents. If we're looking at the difference in brain retention, right, after delivery of these agents, what we're seeing based on the data is a two or a three times difference, right? Or if we're looking at macrocyclics versus linear, maybe even a 10 times difference. So that's the reason why I say that if you look at, because if I'm making an argument in the litigation theater, I say, you doubled my risk or you tripled my risk of gadolinium deposition disease, that has power, right? You increase my risk by 20%, that yeah. doesn't have power. And so that's the reason why I kind of focus from a risk management standpoint, I would be using Prohance or gadoteridol, right? That would be the agent that I would be choosing. We also, if you say, you know, you know one other thing is if you look at regular Joes, right? Um, juries are made up by regular Joes. And, and so, if you look at the the sequela of what these patients are going to be claiming, they're going to be claiming brain fog or that they can't think the same way. They're going to be claiming pain and nerve type symptoms. These are all kind of symptoms that are, are going to be more associated from a regular Joe to the brain. And so that's why for me, I focus first on brain retention when it comes right. to a risk management strategy. It doesn't mean it's the right decision, but that's the the, the rationale for me focusing on that. Well, in the litigation theater, the the brain is always going to trump the femur, don't you think? That's right. I, I, and that's exactly it. And it sounds, and, and again, the scientists and, and physicians are like, what a stupid kind of explanation. But for those <laughs> of us that really know how, how these type of claims play out, and especially in litigation, that statement has so much power and is there's so much honesty in it. Now, in terms of the efficacy, I mean, you don't want to use an agent that's not going to show you the pathology. This, is Prohance adequate to get the job done compared to the other two that you just decided you're less likely to use? Yeah, well, that's, that's a great question. So if we look at the macrocyclic, and here's the, before I answer that question, I'm going to go to one more thing, which is to say, it seems, you know, there's a, a, a major move in, in the market from, from linear agents to macrocyclic agents usage across the United States, you know. And yeah. if you ask folks why they're doing that move, they'll say, oh, it's because of this data that come out, it's because of this retention. But then there seems to be less ability to say within the ma macrocyclic class, you should choose the one that has the least amount of retention, right? So we're willing to make a class shift. But we're not willing to say, you know, we'll use the one with the least retention. And for me, my thing is you either do all or not. You either should take a stance that says, I don't believe the data. The data is not strong enough. So I'm not going to make a move at all, right? Mm -hmm. I'm going to stick with the linears. And they have much higher relaxivity or higher enhancement, quote, unquote, enhancement. You can see things better, right? Yeah. So I'm going to stick with those. Or I'm going to make a move and I'm going to go to the one with the least retention, right? right. But doing this kind of partial risk mitigation to me almost exposes you more because it says, right. well, I've made a move because I believe in it somewhat, but I haven't fully risk mitigated. It's just kind of a weird position to be in from a risk management standpoint. But now going back to your question about seeing things, it, it's definitely true that the, the linear agents show you more and, and it, you can see kind of better enhancements, right? 
I think that if we look at the data, the true risk management data about claims being brought forth because of misses of a tiny met, there's really not those cases out there, right? So it's kind of a theoretical risk without, for me, a, a meaningful risk. The other thing is if we look at just the number of exposures, right? The number of patients you're going to have that have potential metastatic brain disease or metastatic death are going to be small. So the answer would not be, well, to give everybody, uh, uh, you know, a uh, higher retaining, higher gadolinium retaining agent because it gives you better, um, uh, better enhancement. Mm -hmm. The answer would be for the vast majority of your studies, your standard studies, give the one, like give Prohance that has least retention. And then if there's clinical indications that you want to use a higher contrast agent, then use it there, right? And that makes Got sense. It. But honestly, I, I don't think that there's a real uh, risk exposure when we see the difference in enhancement because you're, you're still seeing whether you use Dodrum, Prohance, Gadibus, you're still seeing those metastases. They might pop a little bit less, but you're still able to see them and you're still able to make those diagnoses. And I think there's been a number of very convincing papers that have shown that. So if you're arguing for Prohance and you think you may need more or a different agent, you would make up the difference with informed consent saying, I think the risk may be higher, but the benefit you'll get from it is justified by doing that, correct? Exactly. So if I look at the two risk management options here, and these are the, you know, and, and just to be clear, there's, Hania Boujadeh, who he's the, was one of the first radiologists in the world to actually describe NSF. He's the author of um, the, the main kind of quality and safety textbook in radiology. Um, he came out and, and basically in a recent paper and said that, you know, medical legal exposure has led an increasing number of health systems to switch to Prohance, given its markedly lower levels of retention. Another MDJD who's actually in the imaging sphere um, has also, his name is Nicholas Argy, also mm -hmm. very bright, had recently wrote a paper where he put forward his um, approach. He also preferentially used Prohance unless there are clear reasons to choose an alternative gadolinium-based contrast agent. So, so there's actually, when it comes to the risk management group, there's pretty con good consensus as to where we should be moving. And so based on kind of those opinions, we've put together these two options. And one option is, I say, and I think this is the preferred option, which is, you know, convert to using Prohance for all of your contrast enhanced MRIs with exceptions for limited clinical indications, right? So if you have certain yeah. tumor imaging that you want to do, that's fine because at that point you have a real good reason, you know, the, the, the benefits outweigh the potential risk, right? We don't know that there's any real risk, but the, let's say the litigation theater risk, the benefits outweigh mm -hmm. them, right? In those cases, you might want to do, maybe you should do informed consent. I don't know actually that the, the risk exposure is that great because these are patients that already probably have, you know, yeah. tumors, stage four cancers. So, so you're probably okay just making the decision because you have a good justified basis for why you're right. kind of have, why you have greater retention. So, so there, and again, if we look at the number, if you say 100 MRIs, the number of MRIs that you might be making that decision are like maybe 10%, right? So we've already taken your risk exposure from 100% of potential patients down to the, just these 10%, right? So you've already dramatically decreased it. So, so that's, I think, the preferred option is option one, which is to switch over to Prohance for, for most, almost all of your contrast-enhanced MRIs, with the exception of if you have a good clinical reason to use another agent. The other option would be, okay, you, you like the one that you're using, no need to make a switch, but as you just said, 
think about putting an informed consent process then, right? Think about make sure that patient knows kind of the identity of the contrast agent they're using. Make sure they know that there's a relative increase in the amount of gadolinium deposition that's seen in the brain, at least in these early time points. Um, and make sure that they know why you're choosing that agent over the other and that they have a right to seek imaging somewhere else if they want to use another agent, right? I think, you know, that's mm -hmm. an okay, and, and that's a, a very fair, you essentially eliminate any risk if you do that. The only problem with that we know is we do a lot of MRIs, and right. these informed consent processes are typically done by physicians or advanced practitioners, so your FTE cost of, of putting a formal informed consent process may be more than your cost of just making a switch. But I think either options, when it comes from a risk management standpoint, either option um, is really a, a satisfactory option. I mean, see, it sounds like just migrating to Prohance for most MR scans would be the simplest thing to do. And I, I don't know if you know the answer to my next question, but it comes down to cost. Do you know if Prohance is more expensive than the other agents, comparable or maybe even less expensive? And that's something, it's, on a, it's yeah. interesting. So when I first, you know, came into this issue, I had no clue about the cost because it just really wasn't my, my interest at all. And then after multiple times of speaking to folks, I said, well, what's the difference in cost? And since I don't really kind of deal with the manufacturers, I didn't really know. What I did do is I reached out to a number of health systems and asked them because they all kind of get priced differently, you know? So just basically mm -hmm. asked them, you know, from my understanding, what would the cost differential be? And really the honest answer is it's basically a wash. There's no real difference, significant difference in, in expense um, for these agents. Um, and so, so it really, you know, turns for most of these places turns out to be a rounding error from my understanding. But again, I, when it comes to that side, um, I, I don't know the, the call side as well. And this is just based off of um, discussions with, with health systems that have been thinking about making the move or did make the move. You've been a wealth of information. We are close to running out of time. Um, why don't you wrap up and give me, um, your final thoughts also, um, if you've got, if people want to get in touch with you, just describe the best way to do it. Just to our audience, this is Ben Harvey. He's an MD, JD, who practices um, at uh, Harvard, uh, as well as the Mass General Hospital. He has been a leader in this field in terms of uh, identifying the legal risk associated with gadolinium deposition, deposition disease. And I think his comments as well as his recommendations have been invaluable. I knew nothing about this uh, before going into the conversation today. So I just want to give you a profound thanks. So just wrap up with final thoughts as well as potential contact information. Perfect. Perfect. And so uh, I'll kind of summarize my final thoughts. But before I do that, let me just, I, you know, Jeff, I'm happy. I recently gave a, a comprehensive kind of one hour lecture on this issue specifically at the American College of Radiology's annual meeting that was back in May. And so I'm happy to send that kind of a PDF of that, that lecture to you that you can feel free to share with, with any folks who, who want to share it. And um, my contact information is um, H, like Harlan, B, like Benjamin Harvey, H.B. Harvey at partners.org. That's kind of Partners Healthcare, which is uh, the, the main healthcare system for for MGH and Brigham Women's. And so again, hbharvey at partners.org. 
folks, feel free to reach out to me. Happy to answer questions here, and also happy to 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 share that um, that that slide deck with you. If I were to summarize kind of the main points, this is what they'd be. First thing I'd say in summary is just a reminder that I don't have any financial conflicts to disclose. The second one would be, you know, the reality here is just some ill-advised publications have resulted in a significant risk exposure regarding MRI contrast selection. So this is less about the science now and more about kind of what we call the litigation theater or the risk exposure related to these ill-advised publications. I think the best risk management strategy in the short term is risk mitigation, which is focused on gadolinium retention. So using the gadolinium agent that leaves the least amount in the brain, specifically looking at that early time point, those first kind of five to eight weeks where gadolinium deposition disease um, presents. Based on the currently available data, gadoteridol or Prohance, I think should be the, the gadolinium-based contrast agent of choice. Um, because it clearly deposits the least amount of gadolinium in the brain during that critical early period, and that this recommendation is in agreement with, with other risk management experts who have spoken on this issue. Um, and, and lastly, you know, unfortunately, the, the selection of your gadolinium-based contrast agent is often being made by a pharmacist or a technologist or administrator who might not understand the medical legal liability around this decision. So I just think it's important, that's why I'm happy to share this slide deck, that we give them the information they need so they can understand um, the, the medical legal liability associated with the decisions and hopefully make the right decisions for those that do bear that liability. And we will distribute that. So if people want that slide deck, just write to us, info at medicaljustice.com. That's info at medicaljustice.com. I know on our end, what we're going to do is to continue to follow the going price or the um, the offering price um, related to um, gadolinium litigation, gadolinium lawsuits, gadolinium deposition disease, and see if that number rises over time. I'm I'm going to guess the answer is yes. Anyway, thank you so much for joining us today. You've been a wealth of information um, educating us about something that I would guess most of our listeners knew little to nothing about. So I would say now they're educated, but more importantly, I think they know what to do to try and avoid this litigation theater fiasco related to gadolinium deposition disease. Thank you so much for joining us today. Appreciate it, and we'll probably have you on again at some point in the not-too-distant future. Appreciate it. Great. Thank you so much, Jeff. And with that, we're at the end of our broadcast. Thanks for joining us. In closing, a few messages. If you're an existing member of medical or dental justice and you find yourself on the receiving end of a medical legal threat, please contact us at 1-877-MEDJUST. That's 1-877-MEDJUST or 633-5878. Our STAT hotline is a service offered to all current members. It's designed to get your urgent medical legal questions answered ASAP. Members can also access a plethora of exclusive medical legal resources by logging into their members-only page, which can be accessed by our website, medicaljustice.com. Now, we wanna protect as many doctors as possible. If one of your colleagues is in trouble, please refer him. When a current member of medical justice refers a colleague and that colleague becomes a member, you both receive a month of free protection. To refer a colleague, write to us at infonews, that's I-N, Epizen Frank O, 
infonews at medicaljustice.com. That's infonews at medicaljustice.com. Now, if you're not an existing member of medical or dental justice, but want to bulletproof your practice from medical legal threats, our admin, Wendy Cates, is your best resource for information about our protection plans, implementation, best practices, and pricing models. Wendy can be reached directly at 336-358-5587. We offer discounts for large groups and protect doctors of all specialties in all states. Now, before we close, one last request. If you enjoyed this episode, please write a review on your preferred podcast provider and share our podcast with your colleagues. Reviews help maintain our podcast visibility, which in turn helps us reach a broader audience. This helps us protect more doctors. Thank you for joining us this week. We hope you'll join us on the next episode of the Medical Liability Minute.